10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight, we are going to uh, take a look at the passage that uh, Cam read a minute ago as we continue our our series uh, through James. And I want to let you know ahead of time, we're going to divide this over two weeks. There's too much to responsibly talk about in one night. Um, And so what we're going to do is uh, kind of a deep dive into the cause of conflict, of toxic conflict, and a a brief dip into the cure to toxic conflict. And next week we'll spend, we'll do a deep, deeper dive on the cure um, on that. And I want to clarify too that word toxic conflict. There are, there is such thing as godly conflict. There are occasions or situations or reasons where anger is the appropriate emotion and fighting is the appropriate response. Fighting for the weak or the powerless or the voiceless, standing up for somebody, uh, seeking justice, speaking truth that gets you in trouble. There's a, a lot of occasions where that kind of conflict is appropriate. So what we're talking about tonight and what James is talking about is ungodly conflict toxic conflict, fighting that's generated out of self-centeredness and selfishness, and me using you to get the desires that I really am after. Make sense? So we're, that's narrowly what we're talking about. Let me pray for us, and uh, we will get into this. Uh, Lord Jesus, I uh, pray that you will come and help us tonight. Ansley said it in her prayer, Um, There's a lot of people in the room, and we are coming out of days and weeks and even lives that are all over the map. We might even have felt like today was just being all over the map. Would this be restful for us as we hear you sit and teach us? Jesus, there are hard and convicting words in here, but they are unto love and unto healing and unto nearness to you. And so would you not just allow these to be convicting? We don't want to just be convicted. We want our hearts to be softened that we would move towards you and you would move back towards us. Um, So I pray that uh, for tonight. In your name we pray, amen. All right, look at that transformation. Shocking, huh? Six years ago, I don't know where you were or what stage of life you were in, but that was the big... Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, 2016 presidential election. It was unique, um, not because it was contentious, pretty much every election is contentious, but because the country was so polarized in the middle of that 
entire election process. It was the first time that social media had really been leveraged by both sides to kind of be like the main source of information that was shaping people's opinions about these two candidates. And again, what was unique about that particular election, I know it seems a little normal now, but prior to that election, it was not normal. Um, it wasn't just that people said, let's agree to disagree, or you have your views and I have my views, but that year and the years after were really more, um, we disagree and you are people like you are dangerous to the country. And people like me need to do whatever it takes to keep people like you away from power and away from being in political positions. And so uh, people were really becoming enemies. That was the election that uh, um, maybe you felt like you lost friendships over that. Lots of people lost friends in that election because of how polarized and divided the country is becoming. Republicans and Democrats, maybe, again, like they're looking at each other as enemies, as enemies, as threats, as dangers to the country. Well, the election happens, and I don't remember exactly when, but it was months after. News starts to break that something more was going on behind the scenes. And it turned out in retrospect that our enemy was not just each other, but literally our enemy in that election was Russia of all places. The cyber warfare branch of the Russian military uh, in the year leading up to that election had set up what they called troll farms. And it was just, it was tons of soldiers in a room generating tens of thousands of fake social media accounts that were going to be the conduits through which they would just kind of disseminate this viral propaganda, um, super emotionally charged, politically warped, uh, uh, material information to, to millions of unsuspecting Americans. None of us were in on it. We didn't know it was fake. We didn't know it was intentionally designed to divide us and turn the two sides against each other. And it seemed to work flawlessly. Hindsight's 2020. So when we look back at that, it's easier to see what was going on, but political conflict had taken hold Americans were fighting each other, we were blaming each other, we were each other's enemies, but behind it all, there was a bigger enemy stoking all of that division. James asks a question in this first verse, which is always a way an author or a preacher uh, reaches back out to his audience to engage them, and to say, what do you say? What's your answer to the question? What causes fights and quarrels among us. Why do we fight each other is his question. He is again speaking primarily to uh, Christians in this early church, people that he knew. He says, why do we fight each other? Why do we have beef with each other? And you might not be a conflict, uh, a, a kind of a person who's okay with conflict, so it might be cold conflict to you, kind of you know, um, punitive silence or avoiding or cold shouldering or just kind of cutting someone off or distancing. It, conflict for you might look like that or internal resentment that maybe never gets expressed. Or you might like 
be just fine with conflict. You're a blunt person temperamentally. You're, you're fine, you know, just kind of telling it like it is. And conflict for you uh, really does look like verbal arguments or hurtful words or trying to win every argument. But again, James says, why is it there? Why is it there? Our habit is to blame circumstances for why it's there. Like if I asked um, in that opening scenario I gave you, what caused all the conflict and tension in 2016? And you said, well, political differences. No, 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 remember? There's something huge going on behind the scenes, beneath the surface. So if you said, what makes us angry? What makes us fight? What makes us cold shoulder each other? What makes two people drift apart to punish each other? We might, out of habit, blame superficial circumstances like, well, they're always late, or I'm angry at the car in front of me because of how slow they drive or how fast they drive, or that person didn't reach out to me enough and didn't include me enough, that's why I'm angry, or our sentences always start with other people's pronouns, he said, she did, they didn't do this, and it made me mad. And the theme to all of, the, all of those excuses and, and um things that we pin the blame for conflict on is that what do they all have in common? They're all not us. They're not all not me. It's all things outside of me, right? Circumstances or people and their actions. And James isn't buying those answers. He's not buying those explanations. He won't have anything really to do with it. And he keeps asking, um, no, keep thinking, keep digging. Where's the resentment coming from? Where's the tension coming from? The eye rolling and the avoidance. Why do the people who press your button so much, why do they press your button? In the past week, if a situation or a person or a place has gotten under your skin and really irritated you, why? Why did it produce that reaction in you? And why was your reaction so strong? So James would have us begin our answers um, more like this. I blew up. I whispered that snide comment about that person. I tailgated the slow driver or loudly accelerated around them and pulled back in front of them. I avoided her. And here's the answer. Because I wasn't getting my way. That's God's answer to where the beef comes from that we feel with each other. And it seems common sense when you say it that way, but it's very illuminating. We'll see it in the passage in a second, but ultimately what he's saying is, I'm not getting what I want. You're keeping me from getting it. And that's why I'm angry at you. There's something that I want or think I have to have, and you're standing in the way of it. You're frustrating my ability to get it, and I love that thing so much I'm willing to fight you to get it. Or if I can't get it, I'm willing to punish you because you kept me from it. That's kind of the logic that he's running with here. Again, he says, what causes all these relational disappointments, the confusions, the misunderstandings, the hurt feelings, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle or war inside of you. 
His, his answer is simple. Why is there war around us? Why is there conflict around us? And James would say, because there's conflict inside of you, in your heart. It just spills out. All the circumstances, all the hypotheticals I mentioned just occasion those things coming out. I don't remember the passage, but maybe a month ago, uh, you remember that startling, <laughs> escalating illustration of the mug? You know, after large heap, I'm walking around with a mug full of something, and, and, and whoops, I knew that would happen. Now you know why I wear button-up shirts every week. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm kind of going through the crowd, and one of you bumps into me, and it spills on you, and you're like, what is that? This is burning me. And I say, well, uh, it was a cup full of acid. What, what, what's the big deal? Why are you getting so worked up? And, and the question that you should ask me is not, uh, you shouldn't take responsibility for the bumping into me. You should say, like, why are you walking around with a cup filled with that around all these people? The bump, the agitation, the aggravation simply caused what was already inside to come out. Conflict triggers tension. Um, circumstances simply cause what's, what's going on in your heart to come out and play out in front of everybody else. It reveals our hearts. It reveals what's inside. So those shaken the circumstances of not getting invited to a thing you really wanted to be at or the super slow cashier at the fast food place, those just provide the occasion, the clueless advisor who messed up your semester. As, as bad as that is, as much as it hurts, as much damage as those things cause, I don't need to minimize the frustration of those things. But James wants to know, why does my heart retaliate against those people? There could be other responses. Why is it conflict? Why is it fighting? Why is it war? Whether it's verbal or emotional or literal. So this is helpful. These are helpful insights. And I think it, God had to be the one to tell us because I'm not sure this ever would have intuitively occurred to us because of that habit of pinning our fingers on circumstantial things. It, it made me do it. She made me do it. He made me do it. That place made me do it. It's helpful even though um, it's, it's convicting. Here's one way practically I think this is helpful. Do you ever feel stuck in some emotion, particularly anger because it's such a strong emotion? Emotions are kind of the first responder of the body. Something goes south and your emotions are there immediately and you didn't ask for them. You're like, uh, let me call up um, frustration. Let me call up debilitating sadness and see if it can respond and come, come help me in this situation. It's just there. And you're like, who are you? And before you even know what's going on, all these emotions are there and they're affecting you powerfully. They're the first responders. They don't ask permission. They just come. And we're left reacting to it, right? We're left kind of cleaning up the spill and, and wondering how to put it all back together. But it's hard to kind of like to grow in those situations or to, to move through them and to come out the other side if you're stuck in the emotion. If you're just like, I'm just angry and I don't know why, that's a hard place to be. Um, or you're feeling like, I just, I hate this person and, and you haven't been able to get through that. Or a situation that you're in just sucks and that's just kind of still where you're stuck. 
what do all those responses miss, though, if it's just like, I'm just angry, or I just hate them, and you're stuck there because these emotions have responded and you don't know why they're there. Um, if, you can't, if you can't get to the heart of the matter, the root cause of why you're feeling or responding that way, you can't really grow. It's just going to keep happening over and over again. And, and worse, it's going to get more and more reinforced. So that Jesus is kind enough to share his light and to shine it in the darkness so that you and I can see and, and label things for what they are and diagnose things for what they are is in itself a mercy, which means because God is God and because he's alive and near and active, conflict, aggravation, irritation uh, is a redemptive opportunity. It's an opportunity to get to know yourself in a way you couldn't have known yourself before, and it's a way to do work in your heart and with your desires that you couldn't have done otherwise. It surfaces things that you couldn't have otherwise seen. So just like in James 1, suffering and trials of various kinds that we normally just label bad, I don't want to have it, get me away from it, in, because God is God, because he's alive, because he's resurrected, because he's near and he's kind, he will use, he will hijack trials of various kinds to produce growth. He will hijack even fighting and conflict to open your eyes so that you can move through it and not get debilitated in it. This is how people, over time, by his mercy, can gain self-control, not perfect control, but can gain degrees of self-control over our, our emotions. We can feel them, we can name them and understand them, but not be captive to them, dominated by them, and permanently ordered around by them. But you stand above them instead of standing beneath them, always taking orders and dutifully obeying. So this is a mercy of God. James is saying, wherever you feel it, whether it's hot conflict or cold conflict, internal or external, James is waving a flag and he's saying, if you're willing, God will show you some things in your heart um, that will help you move through this. Conflict can be the soul's smoke detector. It can be that. And even this begins to slow us down and give us a little bit of a calmer response to very triggering situations. To very triggering situations. So the Lord is, is shining his light in those places. Back to uh, his diagnosis and what he says is going on in verse 1. Um, you'll see this word um, desires popping up repeatedly. Verse 1, don't these things come from your desires that battle in you? Verse 2, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. He says you covet or you crave, which is a synonym of desire, but you cannot get, and so you quarrel and fight. And then he says in verse 3, sometimes you even, we even pray about, pray about these desires so that we can spend it on our own pleasures. The Greek word uh, for all of those words is the word hedonai, which if you think about it, sounds a lot like an English word that we have called hedonism. And if you know much about hedonism, it's basically a, a word that means a love or pursuit of all things pleasing. It's a life that's oriented, exclusively oriented around getting what you want. 
um, satisfaction now. Indulge every desire, every want now. If I want something, my priority is to go get it. So when he says uh, our desires are at war inside of us, he's saying those unruly cravings and addictions, that's what's battling in our heart and causing uh, uh, issues with other people. Conflict happens when there's two people with that going on in their heart getting in each other's way. Does that make sense why that would produce conflict? You desperately want something and think you have to have it to be okay, and I desperately want something and think I have to have it to be okay, and our, our independent pursuits of those things, at some point our paths intersect and we get in each other's ways and we fight each other to get after what we really want. James says sometimes these are isolated pursuits. It's just kind of us and our desires just trying to get it. I'm going to try to bring this stuff down to earth if it's seeming a little bit abstract. I'm going to do that in just a second. But he's saying you desire and you do not have, um, or sorry, he says, uh, I lost my place here. He says in the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. So he's saying for some of us this is a very godless pursuit. He's not even in the equation. But some of these desires, these cravings, for control or acceptance or certainty or approval or social status, whatever. Some of these things, we don't even know they're evil. We've spiritualized them. We, we pray and plead and beg with God to give them to us. We, at, we, we, we pray about it. We've spiritualized these things and we, we pray that God would give us, would satisfy our addictions, satisfy these cravings would give us all these hedonistic desires that we're chasing after. James says, uh, he's saying that these inner desires are our have-to-haves, our can't-live-withouts, and they drive us into conflict with other people and with God. Here, let me, let's take a second to just kind of slow down and try to bring this a little bit down to earth. I was uh, having coffee with one of you yesterday, and the conversation shifted to... Um, a, pa a verse in Jeremiah, uh, the very first chapter, or sorry, the second chapter of um, the prophet Jeremiah in verse 13. Um, we'll pull it up here um, in case you don't have a Bible to turn to. This is God um, talking to his people, Israel. It's, it applies to us too. And he says, for my people have committed two evils. I'll read this version. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So that's what he says to his people. Now, he's using language and things that we don't really have anymore, and so here's a picture of a cistern. I don't know how well you can see that, but all this black stuff down here is water. Um, and some of you who've been to Israel have seen these things. These were cisterns, either in limestone or other rock outcroppings. They lived in the desert. It rained a few times a year, and that was it. And so if you didn't live right by one of those very rare water sources, the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, uh, and you lived anywhere else, you either had to have a well or you had to dig cisterns. These were huge. Some of you have been over there. You've walked down into these. They're cavernous. And um, so they would dig these things. And you tell me how long you think it would take to carve out a cistern out of solid rock. 
My people have committed two sins. They have dug cisterns, which is back-breaking, everyday work. Wake up, keep carving, keep digging. Go to bed, wake up, keep carving, keep digging. And one day the cistern is done, and then you wait till it rains and fills up with water, and then, even if it doesn't have a hole in it or a crack in the rock that it's leaking out through, then you just watch the water level go down. It's not a well, it has no source of water, it's a finite source, and every time you drink it, every time you use it, water level gets lower and lower and lower, and you get more anxious, and now you gotta go dig another cistern. More backbreaking work, more day and night pursuit of hoarding what gives life, what can sustain you. Does it make sense how anxious and backbreaking and exhausting and wearying that life is? Cistern digging. And then the Lord says, he, he shifts the metaphor a little bit. And he says, now imagine, um, let's say there was just a big crack in the bottom of that in the limestone. And every day you came back, the water level's a foot lower. And you're like, what's going on? Every time I go, I spend my day gathering up all this stuff, the, pursuing these things that I think I got to have and dumping it back in my cistern so that I'll be okay, be secure, be in control, be certain, be loved, be accepted. I keep coming back and it's lower and lower. Do you see how the addictive cycle happens too? Diminishing law of returns. Uh, every time it goes lower, we go into hyperdrive of filling it back up. Last night at Freshman Fellowship, we talked about a quote from David Zoll from his book, Seculosity. He said, we scramble. Hear the anxious, back-breaking, exhausting word? We scramble to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, respected enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that if we get enough, we'll be enough. Do you see the connection between that quote and the cisterns? Do you live your life kind of as a hunter-gatherer, a wanderer every day, on the lookout for life to pick up and bring back with you and put back in the cistern to sustain you another day, another week, another month? My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug out cisterns and keep digging them and keep multiplying those cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So how does this relate to conflict again? If you most desire or crave or love acceptance, you'll love the people who give it to you, the friends around you who are people pleasers, and you will develop um, a cold heart towards those who either withhold it or um, love you in a way where you can't see or believe uh, that they're loving you or accepting you. If you love control, you'll hate anyone who interrupts you. You'll get frustrated at anything that gets in your way. If you love certainty, you'll despise any situation or any place or any person who muddies the waters so that you don't know which way to go. You know, imagine the communal effects of this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard about this, but for the past 30 years, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida have been tied up in federal lawsuits with each other that are still unresolved. Do you know what they're fighting over? 
the Chattahoochee River. Tennessee says a little bit of it, uh, the headwaters of it goes a little bit over the border for us. We want to stick a pipe in it and suck the water out. And Atlanta says, or Georgia says, no, what about Atlanta? They need water. And Florida says, but all the little mussels and oysters in Apalachicola Bay, they need cold water, so we need all that water to come down. And Alabama says, well, we need it for electricity. This scarce resource that everybody wants and is now fighting over for 30 years. James says, that's where beef comes from. That's where conflict comes from. And the Lord has a beautiful response to this as we begin to kind of shift gears to where's Jesus in this? Where's his grace? Where's hope? My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. The people didn't have to live with the cistern system. They didn't have to spend their days just scraping limestone to build containers to keep them safe and secure. They weren't orphans. They didn't have to hoard. They didn't have to spend every day making sure the water level doesn't go down. They had a source of living water, and you have a source of living water. This is a picture of what uh, the Lord is talking about. This is um, Caesarea Philippi, and this is just above here. That's just literally coming out of the rocks. It's a spring, that much. When he says a spring of living water, he's not talking about a little pipe on the Appalachian Trail with a little trickle of water. He's talking about Rivers that literally just come out of the sides of mountains. An endless supply. No scarcity. No anxiety. No need to hoard. No need to leave and go gather and to come back. No need to fight. But a source of common life for a community of people. A place where you can build your life. If you look across the country and you ask yourself, wherever there's a city on North America, why is there a city there? Odds are there's a city there because there was a water source there. A well, an aquifer, a river, a lake. People build cities where there's water nearby. It's living water. It sustains life. It means you don't have to be a pioneer always on the move anxiously toiling just to survive. But you get to stay, you get to put roots down, you get to live there, you get to move on with the business of life and living. My people have committed two evils, they've forsaken, they've left, they've packed up and moved away from living water to go live a desert existence, a nomad existence, waking up every day to hoard a scarce supply of stale water. So if that's the case, the question is, has God said basically, well, I'm taking away the key to the city for you. You left. Bet you wish you didn't do that. Um, how's it going for you in your nomadic existence, gathering living water from other sources, trying to make that work? Is that how he responds? When Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years after Jeremiah is, is, is saying these words to Israel, Pretty early on in his ministry, you know what he calls himself? You know what he calls himself to the woman at the well who had spent her life looking to men, looking to attention, looking to the financial security of a marriage, looking to those things to be living water for you? You remember what Jesus said to her? 
and said in other ways to all the men, I'm living water. You can build, you can build your life near me. You don't have to be on the move anymore. You don't have to do the five marriages kind of thing. You can stay because you can keep getting more and more and more and more and more of me. True satisfaction for those desires that are inside, not those hedonistic, 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 that's a, actually, a, we just coined a term there, Hedon, hedonastic desires, hedonistic desires, not those, but the desires uh, that lead you to God and are satisfied only in him. Next week, where we're gonna take this conversation is the end of the passage verse 7 and 8 and 9, all these things that James invites us to practice and to do in light of what we have heard. When he calls you to resist the devil, Christian, he's presuming you're able to resist. He's presuming you're free from the devil's dominion. When he calls you to submit yourselves to God, he presumes you're able to do that. When he calls you to flee, when he calls you to come near to God, he's presuming that you're able to do that. He's calling you to come back to living water is what he's calling you to do, which is what the Bible calls repentance, which is with thirst in your mouth, moving out to go find water and hoard it from other places. He's saying, simply come back. You've still got your house, still got your land. Move back in to living water and put your roots down by this God. That's the beginning to the solution and the cure a toxic conflict. Next week, again, we'll get a little bit more practical and into the weeds with the end of the passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, some of my friends, many of my friends here have tasted living water. They've lived by streams of living water. Uh, and maybe they feel conviction that they have, for whatever reason, packed up their bags and moved away on the search for life in other places, all those things that our friend David Saul talked about in that quote. And I pray, Jesus, that you would even now let them hear your kind invitation to forsake thirst and to come home and to be satisfied in you as you quench their thirst. And for my friends who've never tasted living water, I pray that you would bless their hunger and their thirst Blessed are those who hunger after righteousness. I pray that you would bless that hunger and bless that thirst and let it lead them to a home they've never known, but one that you invite them in. We pray these things in your name and power. Amen.